From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. In recent years, many U.S. cities have seen a surge in homelessness and lack of affordable housing. This challenge represents a complex and intractable social crisis. During the COVID-19 pandemic, people experiencing homelessness and housing insecurity have faced unique challenges, from practicing safe social distancing, to having adequate shelter, to being able to access food and health care. And because of the increased unemployment rate seen as a result of the pandemic, their concern is that the problem of homelessness will further be exacerbated. On today's episode, Dr. Karen Emmons, the faculty director of the Community Engagement Program at Harvard Catalyst and professor of social and behavioral science at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, speaks with Sheila Dillon, the city of Boston's chief of housing and director of neighborhood development, and Dr. Jesse Gaeta, the Chief Medical Officer at the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program, about what the pandemic means for homeless and housing insecure communities. They also discuss specific challenges and opportunities for healthcare providers, policymakers, and researchers to ensure the community's health and safety during the pandemic, and how the recent efforts may inform future work in housing policy and service provision. This episode was produced in partnership with the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health's Initiative on Health and Homelessness and was recorded on August 28, 2020. Sheila and Jesse, thank you so much for joining us today and thank you for your tremendous work on behalf of the citizens of Boston. I'm really excited that we have the opportunity to share your experiences with our listeners. Now, although it seems like an eternity, it was just at the beginning of this year that we started to learn about COVID-19. Jesse, in those early days, what was Boston Healthcare for the Homeless imagining the impact might be on your work? And how did your planning unfold as we learned more about the virus and how it was spreading? Oh, when I think back to January and February and March, um, we were just increasingly worried about what the impact would be on uh, the population that we serve. We were sort of thinking about how much underlying burden of disease um, people who lack housing have. Uh, we were really worried too about, about people who are living in congregate spaces, we're worried about how quickly a virus like this might spread through those kinds of environments. So we were getting increasingly worried as we were learning more and also didn't know enough about this virus um, early on in the epidemic. So we had a lot of anxiety um, and, you know, our, our community here in Boston um, pulled together remarkably uh, to begin to plan for what we might do to, to help mitigate transmission in this population. What were some of the biggest surprises that you encountered in that planning? Biggest challenges, maybe positive things, but also challenges. Uh, I think some of the challenges were um, trying to figure out how to promote um, much more stringent infection control in 
in shelters where it was really hard to imagine how to do that well. Um, we were also worried about the unsheltered population and how to promote infection control for people staying outside. Um, that was that was a daunting challenge. I think we were also recognizing as the weeks went on that we were going to need spaces to put people who were infected and didn't need a hospital. And I think our one of our biggest challenges, as Sheila can also speak to, is figuring out where we were going to to um, help people recover from COVID illness um, without transmitting to other people when they didn't have housing. That was probably our, our biggest challenge as a community. That sounds like a daunting challenge indeed. Um, Sheila, how about from the perspective of um, Boston's housing and neighborhood development work, um, how, how did you approach this and, and what were some of the challenges that you encountered as this unfolded? Well, I, if, I, if I think back, you know, I, I think back of evenings in the mayor's office with healthcare professionals from the city um, doing a lot of what ifs and imagining worst case scenarios. And um, I will say the, the mayor was uh, listening to experts early on and, and also was imagining a very, very dire situation and um, taking it very seriously. So we were, we started to plan for you know, what happens if half of the homeless population, and not just the homeless population, but uh, other situations where people are in crowded housing, get uh, infected, are impacted, where do they go, as, as, uh, as Jesse was mentioning. And so we started to look for space. Um, and uh, space in Boston's tough. It's a small city, it's a growing population, and space is precious. Um, so we, we started looking at, um, you know, the, the, you know, convention center, uh, dormitories, hotels, you name it. We, uh, we had, we were doing speed dial, you know, calling around, looking for space. And, um, and I think I will, I will agree. It's, it was the partnerships early on that made this really workable. I mean, the city was able to call and use its heft, but then you look around and who's going to operate. And then you're looking at Boston healthcare for the homeless and, and the shelter providers, et cetera. So um, it was really a, a, a race for space uh, and then follow, you know, figuring out the best care after, after that space was secured. So, so you know, in, in many ways, um, these kinds of emergencies can bring out the best in people um, and sometimes they can bring out the worst, but it sounds like in this case, those partnerships and the, groundwork that's been laid over time between the community and government and healthcare um, really were incredibly important in this time. They were, they were, they were very, very impressive. You know, Boston, probably like other major fairly sophisticated cities, we love our process. We like our conversations. We like our planning. We like our community meetings. And uh, there wasn't time. And so we were, we were grabbing space with notification but not input. And, um, you know, it's always important to notify neighbors if you're, if you're setting up, you know, uh, additional homeless shelters or medical facilities, but it was much more notification. And I was holding my breath thinking that, that there's going to be a lot of pushback here. And there was not, there was not. Um, we were citing homeless people to live on Beacon Hill. And if you're not from Boston, Beacon Hill is a very, you know, very high end sort of Tony area. And people were like, what can we do to help? It was, um, it was very, very refreshing. Um, we should learn from that and, and, you know, I think it's always good to get input, but sometimes you just need to act. 
that that's a fantastic story and um, uh, makes me feel so proud of Boston. Um, I suspect that a big part of why that has worked so well is because of the groundwork that's been laid over the many years of that inclusive process. And then when you're very inclusive, sometimes when there's an emergency and that's harder to be, people will be forgiving and, and join together. So that's mm -hmm. true. We did set up, and I, it's a good lesson learned, I think, if you do have to act very quickly, uh, and you can't get a lot of buy-in or, or a lot of, you can't do a lot of process before you establish something new, we did have weekly calls with um, Beacon Hill residents. We, set, we uh, set up another shelter in Brighton with Brighton residents. So on then, you know, okay, once it was established, then we're checking in on a very regular basis to see if there's issues. There, of course, there always is going to be, but then resolving those issues quickly. You, you know, it, it goes a long way. Yeah, well, you gave people an opportunity and a forum to continue to be engaged. So that, that's terrific. Jesse, can you tell us about Boston Hope, how it was conceived and implemented, and what the experience was for both uh, community members as well as providers? Oh, it's, um, it was a completely remarkable uh, story, a remarkable place. It was amazing to work there. Um, how it came to be is actually probably a, a better better answered by Sheila. From my point of view as, as a healthcare provider, um, all of a sudden it, it it happened. It was such a godsend. We needed a release valve. We had so many more people infected than we thought we would have. And thank goodness, most of the infection was mild. So they didn't need to be in a hospital, but we wanted to mitigate spread. And while we were sort of pivoting um, a whole section of our medical respite program, the McGinnis House, to take care of about 52 people who were infected. And we were setting up, with the city's help, really setting up tents to fit another 45 people who were infected. We had a third location, which, and all of these together just didn't end up being quite enough. And thank goodness, um, it was really the city and the state that made Boston Hope happen. So from my point of view, it was just magical, but I think Sheila can talk about that, how it came to be uh, better than I. Yeah, I would just add that, it, you know, once again, and I, the, the mayor had this, he, he sort of, he, he knew that uh, this could be very, very bad. Uh, he knew that, you know, Boston could have high because of, you know, lots of travelers and, you know, the comp, now we're learning how, how impactful the conferences were early on on the infection rates. But we, he knew that we're, we could have a very, very dire, bad situation on our hands and really started working with the hospitals on a very week, on a weekly basis to talk about hospital capacity. And then uh, it lent, it lent itself to having this respite for folks that were homeless or unstably housed. So the, those components came together. And I think, uh, I think Jesse would agree that they worked really well together. I mean, there was a, there was the, the both, both sides of the convention center were, were really working well. So I, it was the mayor that got, got the hospitals uh, and the state and, and insisted upon additional capacity in Boston. It was, um, it, it was him that, that pulled it off. I really don't, don't know what we would have done without Boston Hope. Um, if you remember, we were, you know, in the early part of the pandemic in the United States, we were affected you know, in the Northeast um, very early on. And so while there were outbreaks happening in Washington State and Seattle, we were in touch with our colleagues who, um, who, you know, who work in healthcare for the homeless programs there, we were kind of really out in front with how are we going to manage this for, for this population. And, uh, and we were scrambling for space, like, like Sheila said. 
when um, when Boston Hope um, became possible, it was one of the most amazing things I've, I've ever participated in in my career. I just remember walking into that building for the first time, seeing the amazing transformation of that space, um, feeling like this, um, this tremendous sense of relief <laughs> that we had not just a space, but uh, somewhere where people were going to have their own rooms that they could spread out, that it was there was going to be some dignity also to um, uh, just to the time that they were going to need isolation. It would be a dignified space. Um, and it was inspiring um, and also daunting. I mean, I think there was, you know, like a 48-hour period where we were trying to set up, getting all the equipment that we needed trying to figure out what the model will be, um, imagining needing to take care of hundreds of people at a time. We, um, you know, we sort of had to really quickly hire new clinical staff. We had to begin to think about disaster medicine in a new way. Um, look, I remember just looking to military field hospital models as one model for how to, how to, how to do this really quickly, how to stand up such a massive facility. <laughs> Um, so it was a remarkable project, and um, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like without without it. That is such an inspiring um, and important um, uh, story. And one of the things that really strikes me as you're both talking is that there is this need to sort of innovate real time in a terrible emergency, but also thinking about how you look at scientific evidence and then turning to the military field hospital model and thinking about what are models that could be utilized and brought to bear um, in this case. And I think that um, as a translational scientist, that is um, really wonderful to hear. It's like, you know, we have to move in different ways, but we can certainly adapt from strong evidence. So that's, that's terrific. Jesse, can you say a little bit more about how um, the um, service providers, as well as um, some of the um, uh, residents of Boston who were um, using, who were um, patients in Boston Hope, experienced it? Like um, the the response to the pandemic um, for them was really epitomized, I think, in many ways by Boston Hope. The healthcare providers, I would say, were just exhausted by this point because um, we were already a number of weeks into um, just pulling long shifts, managing 24-7 isolation facilities. Um, but we were also just, yeah, I, th I think it sort of felt to, and it still feels to a lot of people in the healthcare industry right now, like, um, you know, basically like this is our moment to just stretch as far as we can. and. And it, it definitely felt like that at Boston Hope. We're a community health center, so we work in a lot of unusual spaces, but this, this was more extreme. <laughs> um, and we needed to manage the space 24 seven. So we just, we immediately hired a number of nurses and doctors who um, had been furloughed from other outpatient settings that just weren't in operation at the time. We pivoted a lot of our clinical practice from outpatient to these inpatient isolation facilities. And um, there was a real um, camaraderie. We just, we just came together, we're gonna do this. We're gonna, you know, all of us are gonna take overnight shifts. Um, and we just put as much structure in place as we could that we were, um, working in such a different way than we usually do. And I have so many examples of that. But you asked about the patients of Boston Hope too and what their experience was like. And um, I think for most people, it was, um, it was a good experience. I think we felt certainly a lot of gratitude from people that we tried to pass on to the city and the state. Um, the structure inside was such that we had 500 separate rooms that were all 
built out of, um, you know, constructed out of drywall. And these were white walls everywhere. And there were several long white walls, these hallways of 60 rooms and that were really long that people would start to take up um, and use to, to create art on these beautiful white walls. And the artwork across, the, across this massive space was just so uplifting. Um, people had a lot of time on their hands as they were in isolation and they were mostly not very sick. And so we were trying to find things for them to do. And, and a lot of people took up um, creating art on the walls and they were mostly messages of thanks and uh, worry about whether they would get sicker. Um, really grateful to be in a place where, um, you know, they could receive care and be in from the elements and feel confident that they weren't going to be forgotten. So I just, I, I think of mostly I felt so much gratitude from people. It was also, it could be though a really, it was a strange environment. I think, you know, one of the struggles was figuring out how to help people with severe mental illness um, who um, were going to walk into this gigantic space um, you know, that they hadn't seen, but we had to convince them to come even. That was a struggle. Really needed to build a lot of trust, even just getting people to Boston Hope. And when they were there, I remember thinking, um, you know, managing the psychiatric needs that people might have was sort of an afterthought. I think our first mission was how can we make sure that we're gonna we can take care of people with COVID if they decompensate and get them out quickly to an emergency room and that's our first goal and it was sort of an afterthought to go back and and then think how can we implement some psych psychiatry first aid so to speak for people who are in crisis in a really strange environment who have and are suffering from severe mental illness and so um, you know, it was probably a couple days in where we decided to bring in psychiatrists to really help us figure out how to manage um, psychiatric illness in that setting. So there's a lot of gratitude from people. Um, most people wanted to stay the whole time, um, weren't excited to leave even after a period of isolation. Um, and, and some people really struggled, though, with the unusual environment. So we had to, had to figure out how to help people manage that. A very inspirational story. Sheila, can you share the policy and governmental perspective on Boston Hope? What are the lessons that we learned from this experience that we want to think about for next time? I think, you know, all the lesson learned that I have learned, and I think many of us have learned, that Boston is a, is, is a very caring, uh, a very impactful place. And that uh, when we work really hard and we... Um, we have a sense of urgency, you know, we, we, we certainly can accomplish, accomplish anything. And, and, um, and I, I think we see that on a, on a, on a very regular day-to-day -day basis when it comes to our unsheltered population. But um, I do think this pandemic and the experience of Boston's hope and, and those months uh, should, should make us all work more quickly together. Right. I mean, it's, um, like I said earlier, we're a very thoughtful city. Uh, we're a city that likes to process and plan. And sometimes if you have a, a situation where a lot of lives are impacted negatively, you need to move quickly. So um, that's what I have personally taken away, especially as we look at what is next, you know, and, and we're all starting to plan for a second surge 
Um, but we also know that uh, in, in the United States, in most major cities, there are too many people in shelter and too many people on the street. And I think we, we really do need to act quickly and with purpose uh, and, and get those folks housed. And we had been doing a lot of good housing work. You know, Boston's got a fairly, uh, compared to other major cities, uh, a, a fairly contained homeless problem. But, um, and we've been doing a lot of good housing work. So we need to resume that work and we need to resume it now and, and with, with great dedication and purpose. Um, it would be nice when, you know, at some point in the future that we have, um, that, that less people are impacted because more people are in, are in housing. You know, picking up on that note, Sheila, um, the mayor's administration has devoted significant resources to think about housing in the city, to expand affordable housing, um, including the city's um, first city-funded rental voucher program, um, and uh, to really just tremendous work in the housing space. What's the impact of the need for them and the ability to move them forward? So I think you're right. I think, you know, sometimes you have to stop and, and say, and take account of what has been accomplished. Um, we, we have created a lot of new housing, uh, market rate, middle income, but most importantly, I think for, for many of us, uh, housing that's affordable to low income families and, and our homeless individuals. So we have to, we have to continue that work. Um, we've been also trying to, to expand our own resources because we're not getting a lot of additional resources from the federal government. Maybe we will in the future, maybe it's right around the corner, uh, but, but it has not been forthcoming. So we're, we're very dedicated to continuing to do that. Um, what we, we are now working on is creating a very large pipeline of projects that are going to serve our homeless individual population more than we ever have. And I'm very excited about this work. We've got a pipeline of about 600, maybe more, of, um, of new housing that we're going to see in the next you know, several years come online. And this is gonna be housing that's very affordable uh, for folks coming out of shelter with, with just wraparound, very rich services. And that is, um, it's, we've been housing homeless individuals in you know everywhere that we can using vouchers using using you know uh, placing in, in just our more typical affordable housing but this is going to be housing that's dedicated to homeless individuals and meeting their needs so i'm very excited about this next chapter of work and and uh, the pipeline is real the resources are being put in place and i think that's a, a missing component that we've had in our affordable housing delivery system it sounds like the um, approach is going to be much more deliberative and planful um, than has been possible before. That's very exciting. I'd like to ask you both about the impact that um, the COVID-19 Housing Stability Act has had on homelessness. Um, Sheila, from the um, perspective of city government, um, what has the impact been and how is the city preparing for when this program ends? The eviction and foreclosure moratorium is in place until mid-October. We are looking, working with our researchers uh, and uh, the Metropolitan Area Planning Council about the number of households that could be impacted uh, by, by the moratorium coming to an end. And planning, the numbers are staggering. They're staggering in every major city. They're staggering in Massachusetts. 
But in Boston, it could be tens of thousands of uh, families and households that can't pay their rent. So we're doing several things. We're starting to work with the court systems on how they, how the process, the eviction process works so that at early on, we can help with uh, rental assistance. Um, we're trying to bring on more uh, attorneys, public service attorneys. We're adding people to answer phones at the Office of Housing Stability, and we're finding both internal and external sources to help us with rent arrearage. With all of that in place, it, it, it may not be enough. And I've been stressing to anyone who will listen, and, and certainly the, the mayor is stressing it as well to, to state and federal partners, that we can't, we can't have people become evicted or families become evicted and have them enter the shelter system. That would be tragic from, from you know, it impacts everything. It impacts education, it impacts health, uh, it impacts, you know, employment stability. We, we cannot have that happen. So we've got to do everything we can at the front end to keep people in their homes. I agree completely. I, I you know, even just thinking about it as a, from a public health lens, um, knowing how we saw this virus spread through congregate settings in Boston, including nursing homes, including the large adult congregate shelters, um, I think, you know, having more people enter that system, more people who need shelter right now, from a public health point of view is just not the right thing to do. Um, it's, it's an unprecedented time. I know this, um, the eviction moratorium causes hardship for landlords, people who are renting for sure. But the last thing we, we can do right now as a community is let more people um, enter into a system that, um, you know, that, that, you know, that, necessarily requires congregate living. That is, that is exactly what the environment where this virus thrives. Uh, I was just thinking back to when we started to do universal testing in the large shelters in Boston. And in the midst of our first wave, we really quickly found that 35 to 40% of people in the large shelters were infected. And that's why we scrambled so fast to find spaces to isolate people. We just wanted to mitigate that spread and it was really difficult and it took many many weeks through that first wave and so um, having more people come into that setting after we decongested in the midst of the this pandemic is it just is not the right thing to do from a public health standpoint so we have to figure out how to not let that happen that's really helpful perspective, um, getting ahead of the problem that we know that um, will come from uh, increased evictions and movement into the um, shelters, not only for all of the things that impact on um, people's health and ability to thrive, but also on the disease outcomes. At Harvard Catalyst, our community engagement and policy team spend a lot of time thinking about the role that data and research play in addressing housing stability and homelessness. This is an area that we, we think um, is just incredibly important. Jesse, how can the research community be an effective partner at, at addressing homelessness, both in terms of the COVID times, but also just generally? Um, I, I think research is so important in, in forwarding policy, and that, that is absolutely the case when it comes to homelessness and housing policy. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking about COVID in particular. Um, you know, it, it's been, I think, really helpful and important to try to 
document what we're observing in terms of transmission. I think we have a, a lot more that we could do to learn about how this virus spreads through um, environments like congregate shelter um, or low-income housing or crowded housing. I think those are areas that we, we need to study more. Um, I was just thinking about a recent um, study that we were just uh, minimally involved in, which was to um, to look at the genomic sequences of um, various various SARS-CoV-2 viruses that circulated in, in the first wave in Boston. And in that study, the research team, which was really from Broad um, and from Harvard School of Public Health and, um, and from the State's Department of Public Health, found that the virus that was circulating in the Biogen conference in late February took about four weeks before it really impacted two very vulnerable populations, the nursing home population in Boston and the sheltered population in Boston. So most of the virus circulating at the large shelters where we did universal testing um, turned out to be direct descendants from um, the virus in the Biogen conference. So that told us that, first of all, that our community is really tight knit that um, it's, we're only a few steps removed from, from these two seemingly disparate populations. Um, I think there's a lot more that we could do to learn with genomic sequencing, with uh, more epidemiologic study to learn about how respiratory viruses like this are transmitted in a congregate shelter, for example. I, I think we have a lot to learn about the risks of this particular disease in unsheltered folks. Research has been really important. We've quickly learned a lot, but we have so much more to learn about COVID and homelessness. I think in general, thinking about housing, um, you know, I think from, from my vantage point, um, there's been a lot of work to try to document and study the effects on health of um, poor housing or uh, crowded housing or or a lack of housing and um, and there's more to more to be done there um, especially at a time when we're we're just inundated with the importance of public health and trying to cope as a as a country as a world with a new virus and we're beginning to realize so much that our policy decisions really have a direct impact on people's health. Um, so it's a moment in time where, um, where that's understood, I think more than I can remember in my career. Um, and so I, I think we should seize that opportunity and continue to document, study, um, define how a lack of housing um, contributes to poor health um, so that we can make better policy decisions about the importance of housing moving forward. Thank you for that. Sheila, how can we more effectively and efficiently translate science into evidence-based policies and practices? How can researchers help with that? So I, I, I think um, in the last five or six years, there has been a, a real shift that, um, that we are looking at good research coming from lots, lots of different sources and good data. Um, we're doing a better job at the city, and, and most major cities are, uh, of really looking at, for instance, who is homeless, how long they're there, what are their characteristics, you know, who, who, who leaves and comes back, who has been there the longest, what are the barriers. So instead of just saying, like, someone shows up for an appointment and 
gosh, you know, nice, nice, nice man. We're going to get him housed. It's, it's instead now looking at who has the big, the most barriers to housing and our resources go there first. They get that person housed and people that might need less help because the data is showing us that, um, then we're, we're, we're tailoring our resources to meet that need as well. But I, I think all of our actions now are, are really uh, a result of looking at data, uh, both in the here and now in Boston, and also looking at successful programs based on data in other cities and countries. So I, I do see a real healthy shift that we're making policy after it doesn't happen every single day and every single hour. Sometimes we do things in the seat of our pants more, but, but I do think our decisions are being more thoughtful and they are doing, they are data driven. And I, you know, we are surrounded by, you know, the best colleges and universities in the world and we do take advantage of them and welcome, we welcome them. Um, we really welcome the partnership, the meetings, the forums, we, we learn from them. And I think we have a very rich, uh, safety net and and uh social programs because of because of those relationships and partnerships i know that uh speaking for myself and for uh, many researchers um right now in the COVID times it has been so important to figure out how we can be most helpful and i think if we can help with um, data and kind of thinking about the data and and really trying to understand this disease as well as um, the impacts on populations long term and and generally some of these how these social issues intersect with health um, it, it brings great meaning to our work I would add one thing the relationships can be time consuming generating data and meetings and and thinking things through people that are collecting and researching it's always more impactful for me because time is short that researchers to help us understand problems, root causes, but it's best when they say, you know what, these are really helpful solutions and these have worked other places. And, you know, you may want to try this. And we think this would work because um, oftentimes researchers will tell us that there's a problem. And if, if a lot of researchers are, 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 are identifying issues and problems, but not necessarily providing proposed solutions or ideas, it's just, you know, it's, it's half of the pie. So that would be my, my request. So give us your best thinking on, on how to solve things as well. That is a really, really helpful um, uh, thing for us to think about. I think we, as scientists, are really good about thinking about problems and sometimes not so good about solutions. So um, I think we all want to move in that direction. This has been such a fascinating conversation. I so appreciate both of your time and the amazing work that you've been doing. Um, as, as we move to end, I wondered if you could um, each share with us kind of one takeaway for our listeners. What is the one thing that you would want them to remember? I think the one thing that um, I just find so remarkable and that I wanna keep remembering about the first wave in Boston was how much we accomplished how well we took care of people who lack housing. It, it was, it felt like a, such a massive effort and partnership and so stressful. And like, I'm thinking Sheila, I would have never imagined a moment where we're talking on a podcast about what we did uh, just a few months back. Uh, um, but we we did something really remarkable here. We um, we created spaces out of thin air. We used buildings in Boston that would never 
would never even dreamed of using for this kind of purpose. We did it quickly. We did it because we had to. And if we can do those things in a crisis, um, you know, we can we can do so much when it's not a crisis moment. Um, we can move mountains as as a community here for homeless people. Thank you, Jesse. Sheila, what would you like our to leave our uh, our listeners with? It's funny. I I I um I was just jotting down a note, and and they, it was very similar. I I together, and I'm, it's not just healthcare for the homeless or Boston, the city of Boston, but really Boston at large saved a lot of lives, a lot of very vulnerable lives during that time by being willing and and welcoming. Uh, going forward, we need to use that same level of um, of urgency. Uh, to solve these problems that are now even clearer, uh, even more compelling. We, we absolutely need to um, let nothing stand in the way of solving our homeless problem as a, as a country. Uh, it's just, um, it's unconscionable and um, we need to insist that all levels of government, uh, I'm really speaking to the federal government right now, that we, we don't find ourselves with homeless populations again subject to you know ravaged diseases it's just um it's it's wrong and it's america it should it should end i think that is a fantastic place for us to end um this has been such a fascinating conversation um both the city and um, boston healthcare for the homeless has done such an amazing job um in this pandemic and in your everyday work outside of the pandemic so i'm hoping that in maybe a year we can follow up with the conversation to talk about all of the progress that we've made on um, health and homelessness in the city of boston and across the country thank you both very very much for your time thank you Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.